Welcome to Other Voices, Other Choices. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the show. My guest today is Ed Canan, a longtime peace activist currently living in upstate New York. Ed is a member of a group called Upstate Coalition to Ground the Drones and End the Wars, also known as Upstate Drone Action. For years, this group has protested outside the gates of Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York, often engaging in what many term civil disobedience, but which they prefer to call civil resistance. Hancock Air Base is a center of drone warfare, killing people, many of them innocent civilians, halfway around the globe. I'm going to start by reading a portion of an email which came to me a while back via the Syracuse, New York Peace List. On March 19, 2015, on the 12th anniversary of the U.S.'s illegal invasion of Iraq, seven members of the upstate coalition to ground the drones and end the wars shut the main gate of the Hancock Air Base with a giant copy of the U.N. Charter and three other giant books, Dirty Wars, Living Under Drones, and You Never Die Twice. Five of the seven, Daniel Burns of Ithaca, Brian Hines of the Bronx, Ed Canan of Syracuse, Father Bill Pickard of Scranton, and James Ricks of Ithaca will have a jury trial at the DeWitt Town Court facing charges of obstruction of governmental administration, two disorderly conduct charges, and one trespass charge. The other two co-defendants, Julian Oldfield of Syracuse and Bev Rice of New York City, will have their trial at a later date. The two women are facing an extra charge of contempt of court for allegedly violating an order of protection that the Hancock base commander took out against the women in an attempt to keep them from protesting at the base. And now from a more recent email, four drone resistors, James Ricks, Daniel Burns, Brian Hines, and Ed Canan from the 2015 Big Books action at Hancock Air Base were found innocent of all charges at 11 p.m., Thursday, March 2, 2017, at the DeWitt Town Court. After deliberating for only a half an hour, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty on all charges. Applause erupted in the courtroom. The four had been charged with obstruction of governmental administration, disorderly conduct, and trespass, and faced a year in jail. Following the rendering of the verdict, a juror approached Brian Hines and said, I really support what you are doing. Keep doing it. Welcome to the show, Ed, and congratulations. Well, thank you, Wilton. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, I bet you're uh, happy to be here and uh, not in jail, huh? Uh, right, although um, all, all of us were quite willing to go to jail if we needed to. I, I know you've been uh, to jail several times, apparently. Is that correct? Oh, it certainly is. Yeah, okay. So, uh, first of all, I see that Father Bill Pickard was not among the group tried and acquitted, and, and can you tell me why that is? Well, he had his personal circumstances were such that he, he chose to uh, plead out uh, by pleading guilty to, I think it was a trespass charge. So he, he wasn't in a position to risk going to prison for a year, like the rest of us were willing to do. Right, right. And um, how did your group come up with the idea for the big books action? Well, I think that came out of some folks in Ithaca in particular. Um, Ellen Grady comes to mind, who's sort of our our creative person. Um, and then we have uh, also in the Ithaca area an artist who was able to um, develop those books, create them. 
And how did you decide which books to, to include in that? Well, I think we kind of brainstormed, you know, we've all been pretty involved in this issue for several years, and uh, they were all books that I've read, um, except actually I hadn't read the UN Charter before, but I, but I had read the other three. Uh-huh. And they were, you know, important in terms of my own understanding of the issue and my own conscience raising. Yeah. Now, uh, I seem to recall hearing that there was an action, and it may have been this one, where your group took the authorities by surprise. Was that this action? Well, yeah, we've done that with several of our actions. Uh, We found that when we publicized um, our actions beforehand, uh, you know, the police are there waiting for us and we don't get a chance to implement them. I mean, they, they kind of monitor our communications, so... Right, I understand that. Be kind uh, of yeah, careful yeah. about you know talking about our plans, you know, on the phone or over email and so forth. Right, I heard you used snail mail, but uh, maybe that's something you don't want to talk about. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, the authorities must know because they're monitoring our email and, and right. uh, that we're we're not talking a lot over email about uh, you know our actions right. beforehand. Yeah. So they must have been pretty surprised when you rolled up with those six-foot-tall books or whatever they were. And, and I mean, I've seen pictures of it. It was, uh, mm-hmm. it was quite something. Yeah, yeah. I presume they were quite surprised. As soon as they, they saw us coming in, into the ingress to the base, they immediately shut the gate. You know, so, I mean, they were afraid we were coming in or something. I don't know. But that's, right. that hasn't been our approach. Right, right. And um, your trial was originally scheduled for an er- some earlier time, and then it was postponed to February 28th. Right. And, and why is that? Well, um, it, actually, the trial began, and the jury pool was brought into the uh, courtroom so we could have voir dire, you know, the selection of, of the jury members. But we immediately saw that it was a lily-white jury. And one of our defendants, Jim, James Ricks, is a an African-American, also of Native American heritage. And so we, we felt immediately, we understood that, you know, James was not going to have a jury of his peers. So we brought that to the attention of the judge. Uh, the judge had us all come into his chambers. He phoned the um, commissioner of jurors here in Onondaga County. And the upshot was that we were going to postpone the trial until we could have a, another jury pool, hopefully much more diverse than the one that we had gotten. I see. And do you feel that that helped when the actual trial came? Well, we did get a more diverse jury pool. In fact, there were a couple of African Americans on it who turned out not to be part of the jury. But I think it was a very important uh, statement for us to make that, you know, juries need to be diverse. They need to somehow reflect the demographics of the defendants. The trial took place in the town of DeWitt, which is a fairly lily-white, somewhat affluent uh, suburb of Syracuse. And so it would be hard for, you know, an African-American, I think, given the deep racism of this country, to get a fair trial. So having a new jury pool, uh, I, I think, was a very good idea and certainly a good precedent, especially for DeWitt, where many of the um, people arrested in DeWitt are people of color. Uh, so. Uh-huh. Uh, if they're going to have jury trials like we had, then it would be very good if they could have a diverse jury. One would think. One would yeah, think. Yeah.
As I mentioned in the uh, introduction, you term what you're doing to be civil resistance rather than yes. civil disobedience. You say you're not breaking the law but upholding international law, and th that makes right. sense to me, but maybe you'd like to expound on yeah. that a little bit. I mean, for years, activists in the public have talked about um, civil disobedience, uh, but sometimes the defendants haven't been disobedient. Uh, and we believe we have not been disobedient. Uh, we have not broken any laws. In fact, we're trying to enforce laws, especially, you know, international law and um, also domestic law. Um, you know, the, the Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution declares that any treaties that the U.S. Uh, is, a, is a party to, like the U.N. Charter, they are the highest law of our land. And they need to be uh, respected in, in our national courts, our federal courts, but also local courts like the Court of DeWitt. And what we have at Hancock Air Base, which is a, a, a hub for the uh, MQ-9 Reaper drone, which is a robotic killer. We have systematic violation of international law, systematic violation of the UN Charter, which is the highest law of the United States along with other treaties. Right. So we're trying to enforce that. We're also quite mindful when, when we go to Hancock of the Nuremberg uh, principles, which say that when citizens are aware of war crimes committed by their government, they are complicit un unless they work to expose those war crimes. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to expose the war crimes that are happening at Hancock Air Base. Right. I seem to re remember learning that somewhere in like a high school civics lesson or what, whatever it was, but it seems like it just doesn't apply these days to, or at least most people don't think in those terms. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't look at the crimes of our own government. We're, we're, really, right. we're really good at looking at the crimes of official enemies but yes. not, not at our own, the ones that we could actually do something about if we tried to. Right, the moat in our own eye. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it is, yeah. So. And, and uh, Wilton, we have been in court many times in DeWitt about these drones at Hancock Air Base, and we invoke international law. And it's just ignored, you know, by, by the judge. Right. Well, he's part of the same power structure, which is prosecuting these wars. Sure. And, and I, don't, sure. I wouldn't uh, totally expect anything else. I mean, I'd be quite surprised if he, if he did, actually. I think there are a few um, conscious judges, but most of them simply, simply are, are, you know, they're, they're part and parcel of the power structure. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've been arrested a number of times in Washington, D.C., you know, for, you know, activism-type charges, anti-war charges. And some of the judges there, um, they're far more responsive to respecting international law. I mean, it's a much more maybe sophisticated judiciary, a much more publicly oriented judiciary. Uh, they would be federal judges, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe they know, they're more conscious of the, that part of the law. Well, you know, I was, I've been involved since the mid-90s in the School of the Americas campaign to close the School of the Americas down Fort Benning, Georgia. 
And uh, so we, we've been in those courts a number of times also. And, and they, they pretty much disregard international law as well down there. So, and, and that's, you know, that's a federal those are federal judges or federal magistrates. Mm-hmm. One other thing I wanted to bring up, and by the way, we're talking w- with Ed Canan. He's a longtime uh, peace activist, uh, recently found innocent of uh, charges related to the 2015 Big Books uh, action at uh, Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York. And you mentioned to me in an email, I think it was, uh, that you view our government as one of occupation. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit, that we have a government of occupation. Well, yes. I mean, the U.S., in a sense, occupies any number of countries to various degrees. A frequent statistic that I hear is that there are like 700 U.S. military bases around the world. And depending on the, the scale of, of those military bases, they have a lot of leverage over the, their host country. So that's a, it's, it's a, a degree of occupation that's happening in, in many countries. However, what I think is even more significant is the number of military bases here in the United States. In every corner of the United States, there's military bases, and they're so redundant. They're not really about defending our borders. They're not on the borders always by any means. So in a sense, I, I see a pattern of what I think of as the U.S. military occupying the United States itself domestically. And along with that goes the militarization of the police, which is seemingly moving very rapidly. We're being colonized internally. That's what exactly. it really, really amounts to. Internal colonialism, exactly. So let's talk about the main issue here, which is drones. Mm-hmm. Hancock Air Base uh, has the, uh, I forget the exact name, the attack wing and they, they engage in drone warfare right out of right. upstate New York. They're killing people halfway around the world. And maybe you could tell our listeners the implications of drone warfare and, and what it's about. Sure. Okay. I, I think a very important point is the 174th attack wing of the New York National Guard is based there at uh, Hancock Air Base. Um, I mean, the brazenness to acknowledge that you're an attack wing. Attacks in almost any context are, are inappropriate, if not illegal, if not inhum- inhumane. I mean, what what if you had a unit of the of the military that called itself the rape wing? You know, it's just so blatant the illegality of what they are doing, and yet that has become normalized. It's become celebrated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was when they changed their name oh about three years ago from what it was to attack wing. They promoted that. Right. They were proud of that. Yes. One, one thing I emphasize is that drone warfare is so cowardly. You've got people, technicians, operators using joysticks in front of computers. The drones are all are, are elsewhere. They're overseas in any number of countries. But it's an operator here at Hancock Air Base and, and other air bases, too, you know, that, that manipulated joystick. And this leads to the death, the incineration, the maiming of, you know, of, of individuals and, and, and often individuals who aren't even being targeted. They just happen to be within the kill radius of, of the um, Hellfire missile that, the, that is let loose you know, from the Reaper drone. And those victims are thoroughly dehumanized. They're referred to, for one thing, as bug splat. They're not even seen as people. 
Yeah. I mean, that's just typical of warfare, I think, is that, um, you know, the adversary, the victims are dehumanized. You know, they're some like on the level of cockroaches sometimes, you know, you just stomp them out. I think that's an important point. And it's significant for those in the target countries to be aware of how this is happening. I mean, how can they possibly have respect for the United States? when we engage in this cowardly way of killing and massacring. It's like a the perfect scenario for people to become terrorists or what we term terrorists, but they see as freedom fighters. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to create enemies of the United States, that's a great way to go about it. Well, exactly. It, it, it just generates more hostility from the individual that survived, their families, their villages, just their fellow country people are going to be hostile to the United States. And this is really bad karma. This isn't going to play out very well to be generating so many enemies. Now, the military aren't that stupid. I mean, they know that's happening. So why do they continue? One reason I believe this continues, and it's been going on for some years now, is that um, it keeps the pot boiling. Well, I've heard, the, ex- I've heard the term empire of chaos. Okay. Right. Yeah. Which is that the or United disaster capitalism? The, the United States does not want uh, a peaceful resolution of these things. When when we say, well, this war has dra- dragged on for so long, and that's a bad thing. Well, to some people who are making a lot of money off of it, it's a good Lucky it's Martin. a it's a good thing. And for people who can use it as an excuse to steal our our last remaining civil liberties from us, well, it's exactly. a good thing to them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a, a mistake, you know, like. We used to always hear the Vietnam War was a mistake. Right. No, it wasn't a mistake. It was very calculated. That's right. And interestingly enough, you can ask a lot of people who, to this day, don't understand that the United States invaded Vietnam. They think mm-hmm. they think the United States was over there rescuing them from some from some enemy. Right. Uh, yeah. And Noam Chomsky talks about that a lot. He says, well, you know, everybody knows the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. But ask those same people if the United States invaded Vietnam, and they'll, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Very good point. Yeah. You know, um, some years ago, I was in Iraq for about five months, you know, in 2003, during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And um, so when I came back to the States, you know, I gave talks. I mean, one talk I gave was at the Syracuse Law School. And after my presentation, this fellow in the back raised his hand and said, you used the word invade 19 times, you know, as if I was somehow putting out um, disinformation. Right. Yes, it just seems to escape many people in the U.S. the, the reality of invasion, intervention, massacre. We're deeply indoctrinated. Deeply. Now, You know, I mentioned the killings, the assassinations, the maiming of the victims. A whole other dimension to this, however, is terrorism. Aerial warfare is terrorism. It is. So drone warfare is terrorism. And it generates a terror response, although I'm not sure it's terror when it's the response to terror. It could be self-defense. Could be self-defense, although it's very difficult to defend against drones. Right. But you can still fight an empire that's using drones on you. Right. So this is something I think maybe is unfathomable to many people in the United States, that what the U.S. is doing, what the Pentagon is doing, what drones are doing is terrorism. Right. Now, 
One reason it's unfathomable is because we don't know what terrorism means. Almost never is the term terrorism defined by, you know, pundits, by politicians, in everyday speech. But what terrorism is, at least according to the U.S. State Department's definition, it's something like um, violence or the threat of violence directed at civilians for political purposes. Right. And I would add political and economic purposes. But they try to limit that to mean um, actions committed by non-state entities. In other words, so the United States can't be a terrorist. but mm-hmm. By but, definition. Right, right. And not mm-hmm. only by non-state entities, but by people of color, mostly. Right. Right. And primarily in recent years by Islamic people. Right. Or, or people that are acting in the name of Islam and often... They certainly aren't embodying Islamic values, right. as I understand them, or as they come out in the Quran. Right. Much like this U.S. being a so-called Christian country, obviously isn't embodying Christian values in the sense of, you know, Jesus's teachings. Correct. I guess I want to talk more about the drone warfare, though. I mean, you were over there in during shock and awe, you said, in 2003. Right. Can you tell right. us uh, something about about what that was like? Well, during those like three weeks of shock and awe, it was a, a, a dread terrorizing situation of um, armaments blowing up around us. Uh, our, the hotel I was in was never hit, but the hotel across the street was, and, pe- and people were killed in that hotel. And were they primarily non-Americans in that hotel? Well, what it, the hotel I'm referring to is the Palestine Hotel. Uh-huh. which you may remember from those days was where the foreign media were housed. Um, and so... Al Jazeera, were they in there? Al Jazeera actually was right across the Tiber, Tigris River uh-huh. from us. Um, but so what they, they, you know, they had their own building, um, and which I would occasionally visit. They got hit too, didn't they, though? They got hit the same day that um, the Palestine was hit. And it was media people that were killed at the Palestine. And this was like 100 yards from where I was standing. Uh-huh. And it, what it was, was I think it was on April 8th, which is when the Marines poured into Baghdad. And they shelled the Palestine. And the shells would have gone right over our little hotel across the street. And the idea, the message, I'm sure, was to the effect, get the hell out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want you witnessing our coming in and doing what we're going to do. Right. And did you uh, get out of there, or did you? How, how long did you stay there? I stayed another week or so. Wow. In our hotel and the Palestine was surrounded by U.S. Marines and tanks and machine gun nests. So there's a machine gun nest virtually right under my, the balcony of my, my little room. Hardly conducive to a good night's sleep, I would think. Right, but, but at least after April 8th, we weren't hearing the shells anymore. The mortars, because the U.S. Marines are right there in Baghdad. So it was a little quieter once they arrived. But the shelling was pretty scary stuff. I mean, I dived to the floor, you know, a handful of times during that period, you know, came up bruised from doing that. I would wear a whistle around my throat so that if, if I ended up under rubble and was incapacitated and not able to shout, scream, you know, for help, at least I'd have the whistle and maybe... That could alert uh, rescuers. Uh-huh. 
you know, and we had a bag packed, ready to go, you know, for to be evacuated. And we had our um, the windows of our rooms, you know, all taped so that with an explosion, you know, the fragments of glass wouldn't uh, eviscerate us. So, yeah, it was a pretty dicey situation. Scary. And how did you end up over there? That was through the auspices of some group? Yes, Voices in the Wilderness, which was a U.S. human rights group based in Chicago. That's Kathy Kelly's group, Kathy right? Kelly was the co-founder, and she was there while I was there as well for some of the time, and, and during shock and awe. And, of course, she, she was a presence of great grace and dignity, as were the um, Iraqi families who were also in this little hotel, family hotel we were in. I mean, they had been so used to being bombed, I think, even before the U.S. invasion, like since um, 1990, they were very calm walking down into the basement to bomb shelter, you know, and their calmness, you know, was kind of infectious or contagious so that it kind of set a tone so that those of us on the um, Voices in the Wilderness team, I think, handled ourselves pretty well, too, you know, with calmness and dignity. And, uh, you know, there wasn't panic despite the fear. Did the uh, U.S. government try to keep you from going there? Did you have to do an end run around that or something? Yes. Um, it was illegal. We were committing protracted civil disobedience. We went through Amman, Jordan, and then we got taxis um, from Amman to Baghdad, you know, across the desert. Very bleak desert. I don't know, it might have been a 12-hour run at top speed. So, yeah, it was an end run, definitely. And we had no idea how the Marines would treat us when we arrived, when they arrived, rather. And as it turned out, we were able to um, connect with some of them and, and, and have conversations with them. And when they arrived and they were outside our hotel, we had um, banners up on the outside of the hotel and large photos of just typical Iraqi people that we wanted the media to see, because they were housed across the street, wanted to see that, you know, Iraqi people. And we wanted the military to see these pictures of Iraqi people. And we wanted them to see also our banners. I mean, one of the banners was um, courage for peace, not for war. So we were, we were working on communicating both with the media, international media, and with the Marines that came there. And then at, at a point came like, you know, a few hours after they arrived, we uh, went downstairs out of the hotel to the tanks that were surrounding us and, and to the soldiers that were surrounding us and, you know, had conversation with them. And how'd that go? Well, it went pretty good. The several Marines I talked to said, you know, when we enlisted, or when I enlisted, I didn't expect to end up in Iraq. I didn't expect to end up in a war. I wanted to get, um, you know, this was a pathway to college. I couldn't afford college. Right. And this was a way maybe I could go to college. That was what they told us. I mean, basically, they were victims themselves. And not that they didn't do some victimizing, but, the, you know, following orders. Well, we know, we know where that gets us, following orders. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Kathy Kelly. Let me mention Kathy. What Kathy did was she came down and she had a tray of dates. And she went around to the soldiers with these dates which in Islamic culture is a sign of, you know, welcoming. Hospitality. Hospitality, exactly. And she went from soldier to soldier with her dates. Um, I, I had mixed feelings about that because 
I was feeling pretty angry about their presence, actually. Although I contained that anger, but it, it took me quite a while to loosen up before I could actually talk with soldiers. You're listening to Other Voices, Other Choices. I'm Wilton Vaught, host of the show. This episode is a conversation with Ed Canan. Ed is a peace activist who recently stood trial for civil resistance at Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York. He and his co-defendants were acquitted on all charges. You can find this episode on my blog, OtherVoicesOtherChoices.com, on SoundCloud and on iTunes. In my introduction, I mentioned the those orders of protection. Right. Uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, orders of protection typically are used in, in cases where a spouse is being abusive, you know, to, to her or his partner, or abusive to kids. So the kids and the spouse can go to court and get an order of protection against the person that's being the abuser. So, so it's a way to protect, you know, vulnerable people. And, and the order of protection says something like, you know, don't go near these people. Don't go to their home. Don't go to their job. Keep your hands off. And, and just the very language of them was the effect of, you know, no sexual harassment, no fondling. I mean, it was just very much geared toward, you know, these domestic situations that happen. But the, the written with enough latitude that they can also be used to squash uh, political dissent so that the commander of the base could ask the court for order of protection against us, you know, of, you know, in upstate drone action. They're doing these actions. Which is ludicrous. I mean, he's surrounded by men with guns. Exactly. Who are, who are to there, to, there to protect him, protecting yes. the base, and you're out there, peace activists, and, and never hurt anybody, basically. Our actions are scrupulously nonviolent. And, and of course, the commander and, and, and the military personnel are behind these high barbed wire fence, barbed wire top fences. I mean, so it's very ludicrous. But the DeWitt town court was acquiescent to what? what the military wanted. Yeah, I remember being there at that base for one of these uh, actions. It wasn't the big books one, but there was a guy, uh, well, there were a line of soldiers on the other side of the fence mm-hmm. there with their guns, and I got mm-hmm. the distinct impression that they were very much loaded, and I thought to myself, if somebody orders him to shoot me, he'll do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they needed an order of protection against the peace activists. Obviously, that's for political reasons to try to shut you up. Yeah, it's to suppress the First Amendment. Not only were we um, engaged in political dissent, political expression, um, but we went to the base to petition our government for a redress of grievances, which is First Amendment protected behavior. And our grievance, of course, is that, you know, in our name, with our tax money, we're killing people. And even outside of war zones. Uh, innocent people are dying by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands. So that was our grievance. But we got arrested for going to the base for, for saying that. We, what we did was we brought a people's indictment to, to the gate of the base and addressed to the commander in which we would um, itemize the laws that were being broken, um, you know, the violations of the UN Charter, 
the violations of the, the Nuremberg principles, the violations of Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, and so forth. So, so we had this all written out. And, and this people's indictment was co-authored by Ramsey Clark. Former Attorney former, General, right? Former Attorney General of the United States. So it was pretty authoritative, pretty well wrought. Uh, in, in fact, in our first trial, he, he appeared as a witness and, and declared that what was happening at Hancock Air Base was war crime and that we were within our rights going to the base, you know, calling for an end to this war crime. So a bunch of us got these orders of protection. And um, when we'd go back to the base and were arrested, you know, we'd be charged with violating the order of protection. Which is a whole new level of penalties. Right. You know, that's a, uh, I think it carries a year in prison. It's a misdemeanor. That's what you were facing in this recent trial, right? Well, no, we weren't. Uh, Four of us weren't. Five of us weren't. Because our orders of protection actually had expired. I see. Or the commander whose name was on the order of protection had been transferred elsewhere. So it was no longer valid. However, two of us, uh, Julianne Oldfield from Syracuse, and um, uh, Bev, Bev Rice from the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, their order of protection apparently was signed by whoever you know the current commander was at the time of our action back in um, March 2015. I see. So they weren't tried with us because in addition to the charges we had, they had this other misdemeanor of violating allegedly their order of protection. So uh, in my introduction when I said you were facing up to a year in jail, that was in- incorrect. And w- what what was this, the stiffest penalty you would have faced if you had been well, convicted? We, we were facing a year in prison uh, for our misdemeanor, which was obstruction of government, proper, of government administration. Now, that, that was a bogus charge because we did nothing more than what they were charging us for for disorderly contact and trespass. There was, there was no additional behavior beyond trespass, alleged trespass, and alleged disorderly contact. So they just threw that on top. It's just a way to, you know, bust their balls. And it also, because it was a misdemeanor, it meant that we got a jury trial, which worked out quite nicely for us because the jury found us innocent on all counts. I went to one of the trials here, not that one, um, one in the last couple of years, and I remember the judge saying something to the effect that this has to stop. And I get, mm-hmm. I, I get the distinct, yeah, I get the distinct impression that the local, you know, authorities are are getting sick of this. It's been going on for quite a while. Well, they are. Um, now, it's important to understand the economic context here. I, I don't know what goes on in the judge's mind. I can only surmise. But from Syracuse to Rome, New York, is they're establishing a corridor of drone development, ostensibly commercial drone development, domestic drone development. But that, that we should talk about, too. So this is going to bring a lot of jobs to central New York. So the powers that be in central New York, the judiciary, the mainstream media and so forth, they want to really downplay, you know, any resistance to drones. So they see this as uh, kind of setting the public's mind against drones. Is that it? I, I, that's my speculation. I mean, you, you heard yourself, the, the judge saying, this has got to stop. I mean, he said it with quite a bit of vehemence. And uh, 
he's a very controlled person. Uh, so for him to have spoken out so vehemently, uh, I thought was kind of suggestive, telling. The verdict of your recent trial leads me to think that the authority, local authorities may be against what you're doing, but the local people, at least some of them, may be starting to understand what, why you're taking these actions. Well, it could be, at least those ones that were in this particular jury. Um, it's, it's hard to know what um, sort of the general population thinks about these things. We go out to Hancock Air Base like every first and third Tuesday to demonstrate. Uh, during the winter, it's just the first first Tuesday, uh, but beginning with, from like April to November, we're there first and third. And we've been doing this since 2010. And a lot of traffic goes by on East Malloy Road, you know, right right in front of the base. So you know, we have signs, like the sign might be, um, drones fly, children die, you know, that kind of thing. So, so we are reaching, you know, a certain number of people in the DeWitt Township. And hopefully we're reaching personnel on the base as well, you know, because we're there when the, there's shift change. So the cars driving off the base, you know, see us. And I can't help but think that that's got to lead to conversations among them and lead to them maybe checking out the internet about drones. I went to an anti-drone conference at Stony Point Center in New York within the last couple of years, and they had a gentleman there speaking on a panel. I can't remember his name offhand, but he uh, had been a drone operator. Uh-huh. And he said, well, then he came over, he saw the light, and he became an anti-drone activist. And, right. Um, but anyway, he said that people on the inside of the drone installation where he worked were talking about these issues, that mm-hmm. the people out at the front gate who were protesting were putting ideas into these people's minds mm-hmm. that were the Hopefully. subject that were the subject of discussion, and that we yeah. and that we should keep doing it. Right, that's good to hear. Yeah. Anyway, I do think it, if you keep that up persistently, it it makes a difference, and. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, when when Obama was elected, it seemed like mm-hmm. a lot of the anti-war movement, uh, certain segments of it just stayed home and they decided, well, our guy's in there now, we don't mm-hmm. have to do anything. Did you find that, that you had yes. fewer people coming out at that point? Well, we, so that was about eight years ago, and it was just a little after he was elected that we got involved out at Hancock, you know, in 2010. So uh, we, we didn't have a pre-Obama part of our campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do believe generally that um, Obama, uh, a lot of people went to sleep. Right. You know, they fell asleep at the switch. And, and now with Trump, I think people are waking up. And that's, that's, that's like the only good thing about Trump is he has energized the left. But I think the people that kind of fell asleep when Obama came along um, really had no understanding or very little understanding of what was what was happening. If they would look at him and say, well, he's on our side. I mean, the guy has proved himself since to be a war criminal and uh, a mass murderer. And so why would we ever think that, that he's our buddy? Well, I think, like all human beings, he's a, a mixed bag. I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of silver linings with Mr. Obama, but when it comes comes to the drone issue, I mean, he 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 escalated drone warfare well beyond what uh, W, you know, Bush did, and, and now it seems like Trump is going to escalate drone warfare even further than Obama. 
But we see the progression, no matter who's in office, that, uh, I mean, there's this term, the deep state, and the deep state is mm -hmm. still there, no matter who's in office, and their, their wishes and needs will be tended to by the state or else. I think you're right. I, I, I do want to make one point, that when you look at drones, there, there was such a lot of hype about them here in the Syracuse papers back in 2010. And it was clear that the drone tactically is very clever. I mean, it's a very clever weapon. But I've been arguing for years that although drones are tactically clever, they're strategically stupid. And, and we've talked about, you and I just talked about that right. earlier in the show, about the blowback that they generate, the hostility that they generate, the number of uh, civilians they kill. Um, so it, it isn't doing us as you know, citizens of the United States any good. To, to use this drone warfare. It's absolutely not in our interest. It's only in the interests of the deep state, the, the war industry, the profiteers. Yes, you know, Long, Lockheed Martin. And in Syracuse, we have SRC, which is also like, a, it's a nonprofit, but it's also a, a war contractor. There's a whole other dimension here. This thing is coming home to roost. It's not just over there, but drones are already being used here in the U.S., and I think and, that's and a, very, a slippery slope. Very slippery slope. Um, and we're well on our way down the slope. It's like the drone is being used on the Canadian and the Mexican border. Now, a border is a very kind of slippery slope, too, because where's a border area end? You know, I mean, maybe currently they might have some kind of um, protocol where they're only operating, say, within 50 or 100 miles of the border. But what's to keep that from increasing and increasing? And of course, most of the U.S. population is within, you know, 100 miles of, of the U.S. borders. The other thing to be aware of in terms of domestic use is that police departments, some are champing at the bit to get drones to use. And drones can readily be converted, some of them, uh, to be weaponized drones and not just surveillance drones. So that, that's very risky for dissenters, for people of color, for people that are just not cooperative with the current administration. I recently did a video of a Native American protest that was in solidarity with Standing Rock. And mm -hmm. this woman was speaking at the microphone, and she had been there, and she said that all day long there were two aerial vehicles. I don't think they were drones, but they were circling around. There was a helicopter, maybe the other one mm -hmm. was a drone, and they just kept circling and circling. Mm -hmm. And she didn't mm -hmm. know what that was about, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to interrupt. But I think what yeah. they were doing was they were electronically reading everyone's uh, cell phone so they could know the, the identity of everybody who was there. And they are now in, an, in another database if they weren't already. But that's one of the things they can do with drones. Well, that's quite plausible. I, I was out at Standing Rock in uh, November for five or six days, and, and I, it, it wasn't just choppers, helicopters, but it was also, you know, small planes. And at one point, we had this gathering of hundreds of us out there, and there was a small drone, you know, going overhead. Now, I think that drone was probably one of ours, so to speak, you know, someone within the encampment. Somebody did but, have a drone there. They were flying. Yeah. The, the police were trying to uh, shoot it down with their, with their water hoses, their uh -huh. water cannons. Yeah, they, they would uh, direct the stream up at the, at the drone, and they, whoever was operating it would zoom up to uh -huh. try to avoid it. I saw that on a, on a video. 
oh, I missed that. But but anyway, the point for me was that when this, this drone was hovering above us, all, automatically the crowd in their hundreds started chanting, no drones, no drones, no drones. Great. So that's happening to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And here's the thing, I think, is that, okay, so there's there's legitimate commercial applications, humanitarian applications of these surveillance drones domestically. But drone technology, as it develops, and it's evolving very fast, will be co-opted by the military. So domestic commercial drone technology goes hand in hand with the military drone technology. And so the military would, would foster the domestic commercial for its own purposes. The other thing about it is that you have all these drones in the air. How do you know whose they are? How do you know they aren't police drones or intelligence agency drones? And as, and as these like commercial or private drones get normalized, we get so used to having um, you know, police drones, intelligence agency drones, et cetera, in the skies as well. We just kind of accept them, much as we accept uh, surveillance cameras in elevators and street corners. And, yeah, that's a, that's know, a recipe place. for a dystopian nightmare, if you ask me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. And, and, yeah. and besides all that, I mean, these people that we're referring to as terrorists, uh, they can get these things too and smuggle them in and um, you know fly them into buildings or whatever or attach explosives to them and uh, it, it can be a very dangerous technology. I mentioned earlier this uh, local, it's actually it's a nonprofit corporation called SRC. They've just gotten a, a contract from the Pentagon for tens of millions of dollars to develop technology to deal with exactly that situation of, of small drones being used by, you know, anti-establishment um, perpetrators. Well, that's our tax dollars at work, I guess, huh? I'm going to try to wrap up here, and I'm going to read from something you sent me earlier. It's a uh, piece you wrote called Bending the Ark, Striving for Peace and Justice in the Age of Terror. And I believe the subtitle is Becoming a Counter-Terrorist. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the, the, the title of the book is Bending the Ark, and then my chapter in the book is Becoming a Counter-Terrorist. I see. So this, so this was in an anthology, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read first one paragraph, and maybe I can get your thoughts on it. Okay. This is something you wrote in that. Like our adversaries, peace and justice activists are mixed bags we are all shaped by our metabolisms, our circumstances, our opportunities. The trick, I think, is to fashion an ethic and a lifestyle that empowers us, one that frees us from distractions, co-optations, and addictions, especially consumerism, a lifestyle that provides right livelihood and frees us from debt, the great trap of our era. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, there's a few facets in there. Um, where do I begin? Uh, in terms of my own lifestyle, I've just kept free from debt. I mean, I haven't had a credit card since I was an undergraduate, which was a long time ago, uh, over 50 years ago. I think debt is a real trap that most U.S. people seem to have fallen into uh, as part of their consumerism. So th th they can't risk losing their job, like quitting on principle, say. I mean, so many people are working on jobs that really aren't healthy. 
you know, for the planet. Well, they're, they're employed killing people or developing tools to kill people? Yeah. Or, or, or even just developing toxic uh, consumer products. Anyway, if you're in debt, typically you wouldn't dare do anything to risk losing your job. You can't. So you're sort of an indentured servant morally. So that's one aspect. And addictions, you know, I, I mentioned addictions in there. Um, you know, obviously alcohol and other drugs. But one of the major addictions, I think, is consumerism. You know, having to keep up with the Joneses, having to have the latest toys, all that, you know, electronic stuff. And uh, I think that's a real distraction. And distractions, our, our entertainment industry in this country is all about distraction and spectacle. You know, it's uh, bread and circuses. Look who we elected president. Yeah, a TV personality, so to speak. Yeah. So those are some of the elements that I have in, in, in that particular quotation. And I think there's a few more, too, that I'm sort of uh, forgetting. Okay, well, let's, let's move on to another, uh, the, the following paragraph from that. This is you writing here. Given the formidable forces arrayed against peace and social justice, there are no easy answers, no final victories. By its very nature, our impact remains difficult to discern, impossible to assess. Fighting terror is about sowing seeds. The harvest may not be ours to see. We seldom know, though, when we're approaching a tipping point. What's called for, then, is what Latin American activists call relentless persistence. Also, like these activists and like soldiers, we need to prepare for risk and sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I mean, our campaign at Hancock is, you know, in some ways ex exemplifies relentless persistence. We just keep coming back year after year and some of us going to, you know, to prison occasionally. And we often have no idea what impact we are having. Like the traffic that goes by, you know, when we're out there on East Malloy Road. I mean, some of them honk, um, some of us give us the finger, but we just don't know what impact we're having. And we don't know what impact we're having on, on the, the base personnel either. We don't know when that tipping point is going to come. So we need to just keep on plugging away. It's, it's not as if we have better things to be doing than, than working for a better world, you know, a more just and peaceful world. Um, so we might as well just keep sticking at it. And I, and I think that's going to be an important part of making this a better world, to do that. Okay, and with that, I think we'll wrap it up, but is there a way that my listeners can contact you? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not very computer savvy, but I do do email, and I'd be glad to give my email address if people want to contact me. Which is what? Uh, it's my name uh, followed by three digits. So it's E-D-K-I-N-A-N-E. Three four zero at gmail.com. Okay, great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ed, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Wilton. It's a, it's a pleasure uh, interviewing with you. That was Ed Canan, who on March 2nd, 2017, was acquitted along with three co-defendants of all charges connected with his participation in the Big Books Civil Resistance Action at Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York. 
I'm going to round out the hour with an edited version of a short talk by Christopher Aaron, who is the former drone operator to whom I referred earlier. He spoke at the multi-faith anti-drone conference held at Stony Point Center in Stony Point, New York on April 8, 2016. His talk followed a screening of the 2014 documentary, Drone. I did work only for five years in the intelligence community, including several years at the CIA on their drone program. And as was said, I deployed twice to Iraq and Afghanistan for six months each with this program. These are not the precision killing machines that Bush and Obama both claim that they are. I've seen that with my own eyes, both in Langley, outside of Washington, D.C., and in Afghanistan. The numbers of times that we would target senior Taliban and Al-Qaeda members and kill them, yes, there were a number of times. And if you want to define the program's success by those kills, then we had a number of successes. And when you grow up in the 9-11 generation, as I would consider myself, I was in college during 9-11, it's very easy to get caught into the, the Kool-Aid and the groupthink when that's your first job out of college. But if you want to take a broader scope and look at what we are really doing in the area, the number of times that we would drop a Hellfire missile on someone, and then the next day, as we were observing with the predators, and we would see, as opposed to one coffin for the target that we were killing, we would see two or three or four coffins being carried through the streets, and we could see that with the predators. Uh, the number of times that that would happen were not insignificant. And so for myself, I reached a point in 2009 where I started to realize, one of the speakers in the documentary spoke about this, I, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he mentioned this idea of continuous warfare. And I started to see that we were absolutely sowing the seeds with every kill, whether it was an official target or an innocent casualty, we were sowing the seeds for the next round of people to hate us. And just one specific example, we would often target senior Taliban members, especially along the border of Pakistan and the eastern provinces, and they would be associated with the Taliban, and we, fo we would follow them for anywhere from a couple of hours to a couple of months. And they would be associated with these madrasas, these religious schools. And the leader of the religious school associated with the Taliban, we would see him, he would take his group of young boys, usually between 8 to 13 years old, and they would go out into the field, and we would watch them, and they would sit in a circle around the teacher in the center. That's how we knew he was the teacher. Similar to how in the United States, children would go out on a field trip and sit around the teacher, and we would target this individual, and we would shoot a Hellfire missile at him, whether it was a few hours later or that night. And I just started to realize, if you can imagine from the perspective of the, the children who are being told, being taught, 
that they are at war with the West, they are at war with the United States, and suddenly their teacher is blown up either in front of them or down the road overnight. And so suddenly the entire prophecy is true. Everything that the teacher has said is true. And so I began to see this aspect of things at the same time as I was being told by my military leaders, by the politicians, that we were fighting this next, this next good war. And so, again, I resigned in 2009. And I really resonate, just to close, with that idea uh, that was mentioned in the documentary of perpetual war. And I think we need to be really careful because we do have a say and we, and we do have a challenge in front of us here and there is some good work to do to make sure that our country is not fighting war perpetually for the rest of our lives. And I know this is a multi-faith multi-faith community, and so I feel like there's the possibility of going a little deeper here. Um, and I do believe that there is this sense of a divine spark in each one of us, and that just as a suggestion, perhaps this policy of perpetual war that we are seeing now manifest is somehow designed to try to stop this divine spark from within us from fully blossoming. And I think we do have, at the end of the day, the capability of challenging that, and that's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here unless I thought we could do that. Thank you. You've been listening to former drone operator and current drone resistor Christopher Aaron, who spoke at the Multi-Faith Anti-Drone Conference held at Stony Point Center on April 8, 2016. Before that, you heard my interview with civil resistor and anti-drone activist Ed Canan. My name is Wilton Vaught, and the show is Other Voices, Other Choices. You can find this podcast on my blog of the same name, and on iTunes. Thanks for listening.